This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So um, I'm a biological oceanographer or a marine biologist, and I've been working on issues affecting the ocean, and, and ocean acidification is changing the chemistry of seawater, and it's changing the way animals and plants have to adapt to, to the environment. So... Um, most of you will have um, maybe read about the effect of ocean acidification on organisms like corals or echinoderms like sea, um, uh, sea stars or sea urchins. And, uh, but you might be less familiar with a group of um, uh, organisms which are invisible, these microscopic organisms called phytoplankton which use carbon dioxide to photosynthesize. And uh, I am particularly um, uh, concerned with the effect of ocean acidification on a group of organisms, oops, on a group of organisms that um, uh, produce uh, plates of calcium carbonate or chalk, uh, and this group of organisms is called coccolithophores. Um, and um, the main reason why I study phytoplankton is because uh, coccolithophores are also uh, phytoplankton is because they uh, photosynthesize. In other words, they use carbon dioxide and make oxygen. And in fact, photosynthesis through um, these organisms produces more than half of the oxygen that we breathe. So you can imagine that phytoplankton are extremely important organisms in maintaining the health of the planet and in uh, maintaining the chemistry of the atmosphere. So here what you can see is a, a, a global map representing an annual, um, uh, annual uh, primary production, uh, global uh, primary production. And it, this is due to, to phytoplankton. So phytoplankton um, uh, use carbon dioxide, CO2, and produce um, oxygen, as I said, more than half of the oxygen that we breathe. And uh, when I think about the organisms I study, I often um, think about the cells in the human body. So this is um, an art, um, a piece of um, artwork that represents um, processes through these colors in, in, in this uh, human body. And the colors that you can see here represent functions in the human body. So there are a myriad of functions that we have, and we also have a microbiome, so we host um, bacteria and we have uh, viruses. And so we are complex organisms. But actually, the organisms I work with, uh, and I'm showing you an example here of um, dinoflagellate. So what you can see here is a, is a type of dinoflagellate that is uh, bioluminescent. In other words, this organism produces light. So what you can see here is me shaking, giving this, this flask a little shake, and the uh, cells are producing light. Some of these organisms um, uh, produce toxins, neurotoxins or diarrheic toxins. So they can actually kill animals, and in, in including us. And the really cool thing about these organisms is that they have genomes that are a hundred times larger than the human genomes. And there is this um, group of organisms that photosynthesize, so they use carbon dioxide to produce oxygen, and they uh, produce these plates of calcium carbonate that uh, surround the cell, and they uh, form these big blooms. And I'm showing actually two um, little blooms. The one you can see at the top left represents um, a bloom of coccolithophores um, uh, in the south of the southwest coast of England. So this is the turquoise, blue turquoise waters that you can see there. So this is south of uh, Cornwall um, uh, in southwest of England. And we actually had a bloom of coccolithophores here in the Santa Barbara Channel. I don't know if you remember that, but in 2015, there were these turquoise uh, color 
waters. They, this looked like a tropical ecosystem. And this was due to these organisms that produce these white plates, so they make the, wa the water turquoise, and it makes it um, look like a, like a tropical system. So a normal bloom um, uh, is about a, a million cells per liter. We, get we got here six million cells per liter. So you can imagine how excited we were at my doorstep. I work on these organisms and we had a bloom that had been, um, that was unprecedented in, in, the, in these waters. And then the, 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 the last picture that I'm showing is, is actually cliffs, so the, the coccoliths um, or the plates of calcium carbonate surrounding the cells, they accumulate, the cells divide, so there's kind of like an ocean cancer, if you like, so the cells divide and make more and more and more cells. So the waters get really um, uh, high density of, of coccolithophore cells. And then at the end of blooms, the cells uh, decay, the coccoliths fall from the cells, and there is this inevitable, um, you know, export of matter to the ocean floor. This is actually called the biological carbon pump. And what you can see here was previously at the ocean floor and through geological movement, through plate tectonics, it emerged you know, above, the, above the sea surface. So these organisms are incredibly important because they affect um, us on planetary scales. They, they really um, are key organisms in sequestering carbon. And I will tell you a little bit more in a few slides on how they actually do that. So where can we find them today? And there are different ways of monitoring them. So as an oceanographer, I go on expeditions, but we also use technology to monitor these organisms in space and time. So we can use remote sensing or satellite technology, and we can see the top 10 meters of the water column, whatever is uh, there. And through the production of coccoliths, or these plates of chalk, of calcium carbonate, the, we can detect the signal and we can map them in space and time. So here you can see them represented in white pixels. And you can see that they occupy this, um, uh, you know, this, this kind of like a belt in the, in the northern and southern hemisphere high latitudes, in the subpolar uh, regions. And if we were to look um, in other regions where we can see, so like, for example, in the tropics and in the subtropics, if we were to go on an expedition and actually take a sample of water and look what is in the sample of water, they are everywhere. They, these organisms are really everywhere. And the reason why we don't detect them in these tropical and subtropical regions is because they live deeper in the water column and they rarely form blooms. But they are very important or even more important biogeochemically uh, for, 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 for the Earth. So, so coccolithophores are very interesting biogeochemically and the, um, something that I didn't... Uh, talk about in detail is that um, marine chalk or marine uh, calcium carbonate production is the most important way by which the Earth locks away carbon from the atmosphere or sequesters carbon. And by carbon sequestration, and according to the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, um, according to the definition of carbon sequestration, sequestration refers to the export of carbon below 1,000 meters and the accumulation of carbon for um, over time scales longer than centuries, longer than a, a hundred years. So this is the most important way of sequestering carbon. So these organisms are extremely important. So what I'm trying to figure out is, um, is, is what's going to happen, what the fate of these organisms is in, the, in, in, this, um, uh, in this situation in which we are uh, increasing um, systematically carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So if we were to take a chunk of this rock, you know, a, a tiny little piece of this rock, and prepare a slide for a microscope, what we would see um, would be these shells, these uh, plates, these coccoliths, um, uh, like you can see there. So, um, so my work 
has been about, okay, so what's going to happen in the future, whether or to what extent um, ocean acidification and, and other um, uh, climate stressors like warming um, uh, are going to affect the, the fate of the future of these organisms and the production of calcium carbonate. So welcome to the Anthropocene. So we are going through um, this um, uh, era, if you like, or epoch called the Anthropocene, which was coined by Paul Crutzen. And this refers to a time in um, history influenced um, by, by human activities, by, by excessive production and consumption, and of course the release of um, toxic compounds, the release of uh, volatile organic compounds, the release of gases like CO2, and the release of um, uh, toxic chemicals. But I'm going to talk about CO2, um, and we are pretty bad in the US. We um, produce a lot of CO2. Our emissions are the, the, the highest if we compare with other major uh, nations or groups of nations like the European Union. So you can see that uh, we produce about four or five times, I can remember, more uh, carbon dioxide as one of the key greenhouse gases um, compared to, for example, India, and actually compared to the, the average uh, CO2 uh, emissions. So there are all these um, uh, bad, uh, you know, detrimental impacts for the environment, but this is actually really bad for our quality of life. So we have here some examples of atmospheric, um, solid waste, and, um, and, and aquatic uh, residues from industrial operations and from human activities that affect uh, our health. So um, I'm just going to move on to the next two. And I'm showing you um, some examples of uh, greenhouse gases like carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, some organic um, solvents. Uh, we have mercury, we have plastics. And by the way, um, all these end up in the ocean. And when you think about plastics, you know, we, you might think about plastic bottles or, or things that you can actually see. But in fact, what we wear when we put it in the washing machine and then what comes out, that is plastic. All these fibers end up somewhere, and the somewhere is, is actually the ocean. So the ocean is this big reservoir that we think of as having unlimited inertia. And this is, this is the devastating um, aspect of, of, of living through this time, that we have uh, acquired these needs to, to consume and to produce, but this has consequences because the oceans don't have unlimited inertia. So we, um, as a society, have to deal with um, you know, things like, uh, cardio, uh, like respiratory illnesses or cardiovascular disease or cancer, which are caused by, you know, by these um, um, uh, compounds that we are putting into the environment. And we can measure some of them. And actually, I love working with carbon dioxide because we can measure it. And we can actually provide trends and we can look at what's happening uh, over time. So carbon dioxide is, uh, is a, a non-toxic molecule um, which has one atom of carbon and two atoms of oxygen. And it's in relatively, um, in a very small proportion in the atmosphere, so it's 0.04% or 400 par parts per million uh, by volume in air, which is the same uh, as micro-atmospheres in air. And CO2 is important because it's utilized by photosynthesis, by the most abundant protein on Earth, which is Rubisco, to make sugars, to make carbohydrates. And um, the bad side of things is that CO2 is also a greenhouse gas, and it makes the Earth uh, warmer. So this is not uh, so great. And um, CO2 increases in seawater have another bad effect on seawater, which is that they make waters corrosive. Um, to organisms that produce calcium carbonate. So the more carbon dioxide 
that is in the water, the more acidic the water is, and the, the more um, dissolution it will cause on um, organisms that build shells or structures of chalky material um, like calcium carbonate. So I wanted to move on and show you how uh, carbon dioxide is um, increasing over time. And here we have this fabulous record. So uh, for someone working on climate change, looking at CO2 is great because we can actually go back to the 1960s and see uh, the evolution of CO2 in the atmosphere. So you can see that there are these ups and downs. So this is due to seasonality, to changes in differences in productivity between the, the winter and the summer. But we can see this overall trend of increasing carbon dioxide. So this is undisputable. So we can look at it and say, okay, so the atmosphere is getting uh, richer in carbon dioxide. And these are measurements uh, taken at the Mauna Loa uh, Observatory um, uh, in the, at the big island of Hawaii, in the Hawaiian archipelago. And, um, and uh, we have been uh, looking at these measurements and measurements of the uh, carbon dioxide in seawater and many other uh, parameters that are driven by climate change and driven by human activities. And um, parameters like warming, for example, and uh, the effect of oil that we are actually looking at in my lab. But today I'm just going to focus on ocean acidification. And the, the oceans are changing, but the oceans are incredibly co complex to study. So when I'm telling you today about ocean acidification, that does not happen in isolation. So we have other phenomena like warming, like deoxygenation, toxic pollutants, you know, plastic pollution, et cetera, et cetera. So this is just um, focusing on one, um, uh, one stressor of the environment due to human activities. So let me dive into ocean acidification. So um, this is um, uh, a cartoon illustrating ocean acidification, which is a concept that was coined by Ken Caldera in 2003. And ocean acidification refers to the um, increasing acidity, if you like. In fact, the oceans are not acidic, but they are moving towards um, uh, less alkaline or more acidic uh, conditions. So the thing that you have to remember about ocean acidification is that the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is in equilibrium with the carbon dioxide in the surface ocean. So if we put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the carbon dioxide at the surface ocean will increase to restore that equilibrium. And that happens over time scales of months. So within a period of a year or so, we will have the same, proportionally the same increases in the CO2 levels in seawater as CO2 increases in the atmosphere. CO2 in the atmosphere entering CO2 in seawater. And that combines with water and it makes carbonic acid, which is actually, it dissociates immediately into protons and uh, bicarbonate ions. So the protons are represented here by uh, H plus, and this is what determines the acidity of any fluid, like seawater. So the more protons in seawater, the more um, acidic the, the solution or the seawater is, and the lower uh, the pH is. So the, the, the um, um, increase in protons means a decrease in pH. So CO2 increases protons in seawater, and that um, uh, results in a decrease in pH. So the, another bad thing about uh, the increase in protons in seawater is that they uh, lock this very important molecule, which is called uh, carbonate, carbonate ions, in fact. So they, the protons combine, or some of these protons combine with carbonate ions, and they make this other molecule called uh, bicarbonate or bicarbonate ions that you can see here. 
And carbonate ions are extremely important because if the, if the concentration of carbonate ions decreases too much in seawater, then what happens is that the chalk or the calcium carbonate that you can see at the bottom of this um, slide starts dissolving to restore the, um, the concentration of carbonate ions in seawater. So this is a big problem for organisms like corals or like coccolithophores or like mollusks, you know, like um, uh, mussels and clams and so, <coughs> and so on. So we are trying to figure out how they are responding. So before I showed you this um, trend in atmospheric CO2, and here I'm showing you a snapshot starting in the 60s and ending in um, 2010, so not going quite um, all the way up to um, 2017. And so forgot to mentioned um, that in 2017 the concentration or the parts per million, the partial pressure of CO2 um, a few days ago was 409 uh, compared to just, you know, um, around uh, 218 pre-industrial time. So these are big, um, you know, big um, increases in, in, in carbon dioxide. So here you can see in red the, the trend in um, atmospheric CO2. And if you look a little further down, you can see in blue the data for um, for, for seawater, and this is collected from a station called the Aloha Station, which is about 100 kilometers north of uh, Oahu, which is one of the islands in the uh, Hawaiian archipelago. And you can also see ups and downs, you know, increase and, and decrease um, uh, of CO2 over time in seawater. And this is, um, again, due to seasonality and to changes in productivity. So when you have phytoplankton in seawater, they will uh, consume carbon dioxide, it is if, if they have the right conditions in, in the spring or in the summertime when there is light available and, and nutrients. And in the winter, the concentration of CO2 will increase um, because there is less productivity by phytoplankton. And then at the bottom of this um, uh, slide, you can see uh, pH, which is inversely proportional to, uh, to CO2 levels. So you can see a decline over time um, in, in pH. So something that I wanted to show you is that I've been talking about this... Um, about ocean acidification driven primarily by human activities, but in fact there is another type of ocean acidification which is driven um, from below, if you like. So this is called upwelling, and uh, I don't know how many of you here ha have heard of upwelling, but we live um, in a coastal, um, on a coastal site which is characterized by upwelling. So the California current um, is undergoes seasonal upwelling, the same as the Humboldt current, if you go to the southern hemisphere, and um, and a few other examples on the, um, uh, in, uh, in Europe and in the, in the African continent. And what happens is that this is a wind-driven phenomenon in which deep waters, which are rich in carbon dioxide, are brought up to the surface. So these are beautiful natural labs where we can actually conduct experiments or take measurements to see how organisms are already responding to um, these increases, seasonal increases in, in CO2. Um, and the reason why these cold waters are rich in CO2 is because the solubility of carbon dioxide and, and other gases in seawater increases with decreasing temperature. In other words, cold waters have a lot of CO2 in them. So, um, so just if you remember this, because I'm going to tell you another story a little bit later about an artificial upwelling experiment. So, so what do we know so far? So I've been telling you about what acidification is. And um, so we know that, um, so here you have functions uh, on the left. So we have calcification, we have photosynthesis, we have nitrogen fixation that I'm not going to really talk about. And then we have reproduction and development. 
and um, the numbers represent the, the number of studies, and at the top you can see trends from A to D, um, including decreasing in these functions, in calcification, photosynthesis, and so on, increasing neutral responses and non-uniform responses. So um, what we know is that calcification is generally detrimentally affected by ocean acidification. And we know that photosynthesis, as one might expect, because CO2 increases, so we know that photosynthesis is promoted um, by ocean acidification. Nitrogen fixation appears to, be to benefit from ocean acidification, and reproduction um, is, is, um, and, and development are functions that are affected in a negative way by ocean acidification. So we, I'll, I'll just I'm just going to show you a few examples. So another example I wanted to tell you is that you know, we, we look for diversity, changes in diversity as well as changes in abundance and changes in function. So here I'm just showing you a study that we published a few years back, and this was from a Mediterranean uh, study looking at different organisms. So this was, this, this was using data from, from different studies. And what, what uh, was found with this analysis was that calcifying organisms or chalk-making organisms are um, more affected by, by ocean acidification in terms of their diversity or their maintenance of their diversity. And you can see that here by the symbols um, that are open uh, in contrast with the, with the dark symbols that correspond to non-calcifying organisms. But we actually know now that not all organisms that calcify respond in the same way to ocean acidification. So here I just wanted to introduce you to some results that um, we published, my lab published in 2008, and we were uh, the first to report actually an increase in calcification with increasing CO2. So if you look at the x-axis, you can see um, CO2, and then we, um, you can see the coccolith volume. So the coccolith is the shell or the plate of calcium carbonate, and here I'm, I'm showing the, the volume of, of, of the coccoliths. And so we were um, surprised to find that they increased in, in, in volume, and we also noticed that they produced a lot more coccoliths per cell under the high CO2 conditions. And, um, and, and per cell, when, when we looked at the per cell basis, we also realized that they, um, uh, they produce more uh, calcium carbonate per cell. So there are this variety of responses if you look at different species and even within um, the species. So if you think about humans, you know, we are all different. We respond to heat or cold weather or, you know, differently. So this is the same thing. We are using one representative of a species, one strain of a species that responds very differently, in this case, in, in the opposite direction. And then a year later, one of my colleagues, Justin Rees, he published a study showing this diversity of res responses extended to many groups of calcifiers, of chalk makers. And here you actually have to look at this um, uh, graph from left to right. So you can see the effects of um, uh, ocean acidification. At the top you can see increases in calcification in many different organisms. And he used um, anything from blue crab to um, oysters and, and lobsters. And you can see right at the top increases in calcification with increasing um, ocean acidification, and then as you go down, you see diversity, um, a great diversity of responses, from non-uniform responses, neutral responses, and then a decline in calcification. And yes, the majority of the organisms that he looked at um, showed a decline or non-uniform responses. So where do we go from here? You know, we have these lab experiments and these um, 
we go to the field as well. And I had an idea a few years ago about um, uh, retrieving deep water, which is rich in CO2 uh, because it's very cold. And as I said, cold water has a lot of CO2 because its solubility is, is greater than in warmer waters. So we could mimic an artificial upwelling event to look at the response of phytoplankton to um, high CO2 and also potentially to try new engineering uh, initiatives to, to test, um, to test the, the potential impact of this, this kind of approach to promote fertilization of phytoplankton. So we sailed from my hometown in Vigo in Spain and we went all the way to the Porcupine Abyssal Plain, which is almost 5,000 uh, um, meters deep, it's about five kilometers in depth, 4,800 meters. And then we returned to Southampton where I, where I was working at the time. And we sailed on this beautiful vessel, the James Clark Ross, and um, we deployed this rosette and I'm just showing you an example of you know, how we do work at sea. So we have these bottles and we have instrumentation around this frame and we deploy these uh, frames over, over the side of the ship and we can go down to any depth and collect samples uh, using these systems. So um, this is just to show you that we collected samples to look at the chemistry of seawater and I'm just showing you two incubations and you can see if you focus on the nitrate levels, you can see that the deep sea has far greater levels of nitrate and phosphate than, than the surface ocean. We also looked at the, the carbon chemistry of these waters and again I'm just showing you a couple of examples from two incubations. And we started from waters around just under 400 parts per million by volume of CO2 at the surface. And as we went deep, we, um, we reached um, almost 600 parts per million uh, of CO2, which is one of the worst case scenarios for, for the future. So this is um, how we do these experiments. We anchor the incubators on, the, on, on deck. And the reason why we do this, so you can see them there with um, you know, with this, uh, and we run a line um, uh, uh, to the ocean, bringing um, the water. And the reason for this is that we have rough weather sometimes. So we have to really anchor everything on the surfaces and allow space for the waves to get under the, the incubator. So life at sea can be wonderful, but sometimes it can be a little um, too exciting. So I'll just show you very briefly what we found because um, I'm running out of time. So we found again the diversity of responses using these two different strains of, um, of the same species. So we found um, that in the, in the two uh, uh, shallowest waters, they, they didn't uh, display any growth, any cell division. And when we use one strain, um, uh, when we compare the two deepest waters, they show no differences between the, the thousand meter and the, and the 4,000 meter incubations. But in the other strain, we found um, large physiological differences. And I'm just showing you two here in terms of growth and calcium carbonate uh, per cell. So we are working uh, in the Santa Barbara Channel. So we are uh, working within two programs, the Santa Barbara Coastal LTR and the Plumes and Blooms program. And we are using this site as an ocean acidification site. Uh, we have a great flow cytometry facility and one of my PhD students is uh, doing great work um, looking at these particles of calcifiers in the water. We can also um, uh, look at populations and shifts in calcification in populations. And um, one of my, um, my postdocs has been looking at these populations from space, taking advantage of this unexpected bloom from, 2000, uh, from 2015. So um, I am interested in, in, in potential impacts of everything we are doing. You know, how, does, how is this going to affect food security? How is this going to affect the spread of organisms to higher latitudes as, as 
you know, the, the waters get warmer and warmer. So um, I, um, this is my last slide. So these are the big societal issues, you know, and, and one is, uh, I'm curious about what motivates, um, uh, you know, humans to turn into action. And um, I'm concerned about groups that are perhaps misleading information about uh, climate change. And I, um, I wanted to bring up this concept about the my side bias or the, uh, the, the knowledge illusion, which is um, really worrying at a time when there is this, this global crisis, not just in climate, but you know, in, in, in big mobiliza mobilization of, of humans, which is causing um, um, great um, you know, issues in terms of food availability and, and social um, uh, political issues. So, so thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.